This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction this morning. Father, we're thankful for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as the psalmist prayed, it is in the light of your light that we see truth. And that is on the basis of the truth of your word, as Jesus prayed, that we would be sanctified, that it is through your Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us with your word that we are set apart for your use, for your service, and that this is part of what it means to be called, not simply to be saved, but to be called for a purpose, saved for a purpose, and that is to serve you in every aspect of our lives. This is our priority. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today and as we go through various scriptures and connect the teaching of your word from uh, passages in both New and Old Testament, that as we see the, the totality of your teaching uh, throughout your word, we pray that you would be challenged, that God the Holy Spirit would uh, take these things and drive home the points that need to be driven home in each of our lives and that the result would be that we would be uh, transformed in our inner man, in our thinking, and that we would be moved down the, down the line to uh, greater maturity to demonstrate our love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we continue talking about this same passage which we began last week. The passage is in this final section of the core message that Paul has to the Colossians. This is a congregation, as we have studied, that has a core problem of having been infiltrated by uh, unbelievers who are teaching a false doctrine. They're teaching a doctrine that's comprised of different elements. Some of it's been uh, influenced by uh, some uh, extreme forms of Jewish mysticism. Other parts of it have been uh, influenced by some uh, early or sort of ideas that later came together to become known as Gnosticism, elements of just just good old-fashioned legalism that somehow we need to do something to to uh, gain God's approval, that our spiritual life is based on uh, what we do in our own power, observing certain external forms and rituals, uh, observing certain feast days, Sabbath, things of that nature. By the time Paul gets to the core of his challenge to the Colossians, we've seen that his emphasis is on 
first and foremost, understanding who we are as Christians, who we are as believers, and this transformational event is what occurred at the instant that we trusted Christ as Savior. That event is described in Scripture by the term being baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. There are other phrases that are used by Paul in this section to um, express that idea, one of which is that uh, we have died with Christ. Another is that we are now alive in Christ. And this is the essence of what occurs in the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, especially as described in Romans 6, as we've studied, is that when we trust Christ as Savior, we are identified by uh, God the Holy Spirit with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, so that all that we were before we were saved is dead. There's a separation that occurs. That's one of the core ideas in the word death or dying. There is a break, a, a, a permanent final break that occurs at the instant of salvation with all that we were before we were saved. For at that point, we were spiritually dead. We had no hope. We were controlled by uh, the sin nature, the flesh, terms that Paul uses. And at that instant of salvation, we're identified with Christ's death, which is the payment for sin, that break with all that we were as fallen, uh, condemned individuals prior to that, we're identified with his burial, which indicates that, that break and the resurrection to newness of life so that we have new life in him. This is the reality of who we now are. But even though we are now positionally in Christ, we are now, uh, we have died with him. We are alive in him. We do not always live as if this has occurred. We are to realize uh, in our day-to-day -day experience, the truth, the reality, the the, the truthness of this, this shift that occurred when we were saved so that we recognize we're in a new position, we have a new family, we have a new authority, and we have a new relationship with God that is to be characterized by what I've called a new dress code. And that new dress code is basically a new code of conduct, a new code of behavior that is to be a part of every believer's life. Now, this doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen as the result of a one-shot decision to commit your life to Christ or any of those things which have sometimes been taught. Sometimes people get that idea. It's the result of day-to-day -day ongoing decisions. Again and again, we look at, especially in, in Colossians, that this is directed to... Uh, to the believer, the commands here are directed to our volition. Uh, in Romans, in Ephesians, in other passages that are parallel, Paul brings in the emphasis on God the Holy Spirit. But God the Holy Spirit is conspicuously absent in his, uh, in his injunctions here in Colossians because the problem there is m fundamentally the problem of volition. The people are not uh, making the choice, and even though we, when we walk by the Spirit or we're filled with the Spirit, doesn't over, the Spirit never overrides our volition. Uh, he doesn't make decisions for us. He, uh, the filling of the Spirit is where He influences our thinking with the Word of God, as we'll see this the connection when we get to three sixteen, that we are to be uh, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us, and it is. 
through that uh, dwelling of the Word in our soul, the God, the Holy Spirit, uh, <clears throat> uses that as a tool for uh, life transformation. But we have to make those choices. And so these imperatives that we see through here are addressed to us, and we have to engage uh, our volition. Now, last time, as I pointed out, just let me kind of review these three, three or four verses here from 12 through, or these three verses, 12 to 14. Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, by bearing, I pointed out last time, that's a type of a participle that indicates the means so that this, the participle here, bearing and forgiving, explain how to put on these character attributes by bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Actually, it is that which uh, which connects. It's a word that refers to like the connective tissue of a ligament or tendon or something of that nature. Sometimes it was used of, of, of cha- chains or the bonds of a of a prisoner. It's that which holds together, pulls together, and then it's not shouldn't be translated perfection. There, the word is maturity. So this is really helping us understand that the whole process of how how we grow as Christians. Now, last time I pointed out that if we just take this summary of these five attributes that are that are emphasized here, tender mercies, kindness, uh, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, and then we recognize that the way in which this is 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 activated in our in our lives and our souls is through bearing with one another and forgiving one another, we see that the core, the core foundational issue in this whole section is going to be the attribute of, of humility. And I want to drive down a little bit more on that this morning to look at what the Scripture uh, teaches about this as we uh, try to understand this and apply these principles in our own lives, see how this becomes a part of us. We start off with the the first uh, <clears throat> the, the first phrase that's mentioned here, the elect of God, holy and beloved. I just want to stop and look at that for just just a second. The phrase elect of God. Now, this is a phrase that is loaded with a lot of uh, theological minds, as it were. Whenever people mention the concept of election or predestination, uh, people just tend, tend to uh, start vibrating and have a, uh, a mental meltdown uh, in the pew uh, for on one side or the other. It's a simple term that simply means those who are chosen by God, those who are the select of God, those who, one writer puts it, the choice ones of God. It doesn't say anything about how we became that way. That's the first thing to remember. Election, the fact that God chooses who will be saved, is clearly taught in Scripture. What is not clearly taught in Scripture is the basis on which God made that choice. In fact, nowhere does it say that other than one verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that talks about we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That means that God made this choice 
not on the basis of just some sort of arbitrary whim, but God made this choice on the basis of his knowledge. You either have two choices here. Either God made a choice and did not, and his knowledge of all things had no role to play, which would make it purely arbitrary, or God took into account his knowledge of all things, his omniscience. And that means that God knows everything that could be, everything that would be, uh, everything that, uh, uh, and all the relations, causes, and consequences. And it's something that just absolutely beyond our comprehension. For God's knowledge is not like our knowledge, as, as Isaiah said. Uh, his knowledge is immediate and, for lack of a better term, intuitive. God has always known all that can be known. He, his knowledge never increases. His knowledge never diminishes. Uh, he, his knowledge is always the same. He never learns anything. He never forgets anything. He has always known everything and, and every minute component of everything. And so it is impossible in the mind of God to uh, sort of set aside his knowledge of all things. So the fact that the scriptures never clearly say what the basis for God's choice is doesn't mean there's no basis for the choice. I want to say that again because that is an extremely uh, sophisticated and significant thought. Just because the scriptures don't clearly state the criterion for God's choice doesn't mean there's no criterion for the choice. God makes a choice on the basis of something in his knowledge, but we are not specifically told what that is. Since we are told that it is part of his prognosco or foreknowledge, then that's not just a part of his gnosis or knowledge, but his pra or previous knowledge, knowledge of something beforehand. And so this indicates that he is taking into account uh, factors within uh, human existence. Now, does that mean that if he is taking into account human choice, that that's the cause of his choice? No. The Bible never, ever talks about faith, which is what, we're, what he would be knowing, faith as a cause of something. But it, it can be a component of, God, of the, the, the criterion that God uses to make the, a choice. Now, that's a very brief, quick look at the doctrine of election. God chooses people has, for a, different, a lot of different reasons. When he chose Abraham... In Genesis chapter 12, and calls Abraham out from Ur the Chaldees, he is not choosing Abraham for salvation. He is, Abraham is already saved or justified. He is choosing or selecting Abraham for a specific purpose within human history that his descendants would fulfill. Uh, later on with um, uh, Abraham's uh, two grandsons, Isaac and Esau, who are selected by Paul as an example of God's uh, choice in 
Romans chapter 9, Paul uses a phrase he quotes from Malachi talking about Esau, I mean, uh, uh, Isaac, uh, I mean, Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have hated. But when you look at this kind of expression, these are idiomatic expressions, not that God hated Esau, but that God was not selecting him or choosing him for something. What was it that God chose uh, Jacob for and did not choose Esau for? Was it eternal life? No. That's not indicated in the passage at all. He is selecting uh, Jacob as the one through whom the seed promise and the seed blessing will go. And that had nothing to do with justification or eternal life. It had to do with his role and uh, within human history. And so in the Old Testament, we have the, this terminology, the elect of God, used of the Jewish people in that dispensation because they have been chosen by God to fulfill a specific role within human history. So that is one group of those who are elect. The, those who are believers in the church age are also called elect because we have been chosen by God for our position, our role in Jesus Christ, and the basis is not stated, but it is understood, can be understood by putting passages together that, that the foundation for this is that we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So all those who believe in Jesus Christ are chosen on that basis or through that, not because of that, but through that. Then you have the term applied to another group during the future tribulation period, and that refers to the tribulation believers, the tribulation saints, so that the term elect of God is not a term that relates to Israel or relates only to the church or relates only to the future uh, tribulation saints. It is a term that is used to describe uh, those, depending on the context, who are selected, chosen by God for a specific role. So Paul uses this terminology that comes with all of this uh, significant um, background to refer to us as believers. We are chosen by God for a destiny. That's the idea. There is a destiny, there's a plan, there's a purpose in being the choice ones of God. And because we are choice ones of God, we are set apart to that purpose. That's why he brings in that next word, holy. That word holy is a word that uh, means to be set apart for the service of God. So we are uh, the choice ones of God. We are holy. We are set apart for the service of God. That's part of why we have been called as believers is to be set aside for that specific purpose. And we are called beloved, a word from the noun of uh, agapao, that's, I mean, from the verb agapao, which is, which is the word for love. This is a noun form, agapetas, meaning those who have been uh, beneficiaries of God's, uh, of God's love. So that's who we are. Now, I want to look at a couple of things here in terms of the last phrase, the, the five attributes, before I connect this to, so we see how this fits within, within the flow of Scripture. We're commanded to put on, uh, put on these, 
uh, tender mercies. It's an aorist active imperative. Now, you know that I've emphasized the uh, grammar, and the grammar is important. In an aorist imperative, it means that, that this is supposed to be a priority. Now, uh, a lot of things have been done over the years in different contexts by people who've massacred the Greek because they haven't really studied it. There have been certain ideas that have been influenced or entered into the stream of, uh, of Greek grammar that uh, wonderful things that we have today because of computers that have been demonstrated to not be true, certain sort of, uh, shall we say, myths about about language. And one of these is that an aorist imperative, because an aorist tense in, 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 in a regular verb sort of summarizes the action, and sometimes grammarians talked about that as punctiliar action, meaning like a point in time. And so the idea that, uh, a wrong idea that got communicated was that this just sort of wraps everything up into one point in time, and so an aorist imperative has the idea of a one-time decision. That is not true at all, uh, because when you get away from the indicative mood of the, of the Greek verb, which is your main verb of reality, time really doesn't have anything to do with the nature of the, uh, of the, of the, um, of the tense. It has to do with this idea of aspect, and while the word punctiliar is, is adequate, it's really the idea that maybe a whole series of actions over a course of a lifetime are just being talked about as being summed up in, in one, uh, one perspective. And so it doesn't mean it's a one-time thing. It just means it's summarized as, as a single event, not as, a, not as a continuous event. And so the idea of an aorist imperative here, aorist imperatives emphasize priority, Present imperatives emphasize something that's supposed to be a standard operating procedure. Now, I may be talking to this group over here, and they've got a real problem with something, and so I may use an aorist imperative to command you to do something, and that's because I'm saying you need to make this a priority because that's just as a priority. It's not present in your life, so you need to make it a priority. And I'm using that verb and that idea addressing you because you need to hear that this needs to be a priority. But I may be talking about the same thing and use the same verb in talking to this group over here, but because the context of this group over here is different, they don't need to be reminded that this is supposed to be a priority. You need to be reminded that this is to be part of your everyday life. I would make the same command, but I would use a present tense verb to emphasize the fact that this needs to be standard operating procedure in your life. They are not contrastive of one another. They're simply emphasizing different aspects as you are making, making a command. Now, we're going to come back to that emphasis on an aorist imperative uh, a little later on in a verse where it will uh, maybe a little more familiar to you. So we're to put on these five attributes. It's not a one-shot thing. You don't just put them on like a, a suit of clothes one day and that's it. It's really a process of spiritual growth that these attributes become a part of our uh, become a part of our life. The first attribute that's mentioned there it's translated in the King James version as tender mercies. In the New American Standard version, it's translated a heart of compassion, and in the uh, NET Bible, it's translated a heart of mercy. 
Actually, the word heart isn't there, but that's a good translation. The word that is there in the Greek is a word splankna, which actually means your inner parts, uh, often your inner bowels. And uh, the way the, the, the uh, Hebrews looked at, uh, at emotion was that this impacted your, your gut. And we, we still talk about the same way. What, what does your gut tell you? Or you get really upset about something and you feel it internally. You feel, it affects your bowels. It affects uh, your, your, your internal makeup. And so they would often associate certain emotions with certain uh, parts of the uh, uh, f- physiological parts of the intestines. But often even those words like splankna would be used uh, to refer to uh, to the mind. So it's really important to understand these kinds of uh, figures of speech. For example, in John 7:38, Jesus says, "He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." But we don't have the word cardia there for heart at all. We have, in fact, we have the word koilia, which is the word for womb. Now, he's not talking about a physical womb either. I'm just using this as an example of how you know, koilia as the, the womb, uh, uh, splankna as the bowels or, or uh, uh, intestines or the cardia. All of these are just used often to express the idea of the innermost part of man or the uh, the immaterial part of man, and frequently they are used to describe not emotion, which is how we often associate um, the word heart, but for thinking. Now, there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that clearly use the word heart also to refer to uh, to emotion because the, the, the metaphor of heart, the, the literal meaning of a heart is your, your physiological organ that pumps blood through your body. But, but the Bible never uses the word heart, either Lave in the Old Testament or Cardia in the New Testament, to describe th- that physiological organ. It's not used that way at all in either Old or New Testament. It's always used in a metaphorical sense to refer to the innermost, our core, our central part uh, of an individual. In fact, the second meaning in the Oxford English Dictionary uh, for the word heart is that it is it describes the central, innermost, or vital part of something. So, it, it, in that sense, it's sometimes used as the, for the as a uh, as a synonym for the soul as a whole, in which it could speak to either emotion or to uh, thinking, or sometimes it, it focuses on just the thinking part, or sometimes uh, just the emotion part. Primarily, it focuses more on the thinking, and only on a few times on the, the emotion uh, by comparison. In Genesis 6-5, Scripture says, The Lord saw that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. So there's one passage that talks about thinking. Psalm 4-4 says, Meditate in your heart. But there are other passages, such as Psalm 13-5, it talks about uh, joy in your heart, uh, my heart shall rejoice. Others that express these terms related to uh, re- related to emotion. So the idea it, there is to put on a heart or a mindset of of mercy. Mercy is the application of grace toward other people, people who don't deserve it. That's the essence of grace. is It's an undeserved kindness and undeserved favor. 
The word for kindness is a word, Greek word, arkermos, which is a word we will find in a passage I'm going to go to in a minute in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1. We have uh, other words here, kindness, humility, meekness. Both of these words emphasize not having a self-absorbed or self-oriented approach to things. It's not about me. It's not about what you did to me. It's not about uh, what you deserve to happen to you because of what you did to me. Uh, It is about the fact that I need to be serving God. And then the last one is patience, long-suffering. Uh, and it has to that that leads into the uh, participle that follows in verse thirteen, bearing bearing with one another. Now, as I pointed out last time, this leads to ultimately uh, putting on love in verse fourteen. Before we get there, and to kind of tie some background information together, I want you to turn with me briefly to uh, to the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, there's an important connection between humility and love. Humility is not being self-absorbed. It's more than that. It's being oriented to the authority of God. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, God says that Moses uh, was uh, very humble, more than all men on the face of the earth. Now, Moses was not a milquetoast. Moses was not a doormat. Moses was not somebody who could just be uh, run over by anybody else's agenda. Moses was uh, a very strong, firm leader. Nobody took advantage of Moses. But that, so the idea of meekness and humility that we ha- often have in English is not part of the either the Hebrew or the Greek concept. Part of the Greek and Hebrew concept is humility means is humility towards God. If we don't have humility towards God, we really can't have humility towards other people. Uh, humility towards God is being oriented to the authority of God and being submissive to his authority. And so I want to look at a couple of different passages just to pull some things together for you. Um, the first passage here is in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is a passage that is at, at the heart of, uh, of anyone you talk to that, that is Jewish, any Jewish belief. It's called the Shema, which is just based on the initial word, hear. But it doesn't mean just hear. It doesn't mean just have your, your uh, auditory nerves stimulated. It means to obey. Uh, we use it that way a lot. If you're a parent... Since today's Mother's Day, I'll say something about parents and moms. Uh, my mother would say, listen to me. Okay, that did not mean just to hear physically what she said, but to do what she said. In English, we've got the same idiom that hearing means not just listening, but doing what you're told to do. And so the command here is hear, listen, or uh, a paraphrase might translate it, uh, obey Israel. And that's really what's being said here is obey this, Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord, and most translators, our translations uh, translate it this way, the Lord is one. And it has t- been taken historically by many to be a verse emphasizing monotheism. And I would agree with the uh, 1985 Jewish Publication Society translation of the Tanakh that this has nothing to do with monotheism. 
And they re- I was surprised that they took this view in light of the, the history of the debate between uh, Judaism, strict monotheism, and Trinitarian monotheism. But the word echad, which is a word translated one, doesn't mean a singularity. When you have, Moses uses the same word that when a man and woman come together, the two become one flesh. They do not become a singularity. They become a unity of parts. And so uh, the word also has the idea of, of, of distinction or uniqueness or alone. And so the uh, Jewish Publication Society Tanakh translation from 1985 translates it, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. See, this is written in the context of Israel having to deal with polytheism and that the issue here isn't, uh, isn't strict monotheism. The issue is Yahweh, Yahweh alone is their God, no other gods. That relates to the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that there, you shall have no other gods before me. There was no competition. God and God, God was, the Lord was God alone for Israel. And so there's this command here, and the statement begins with the Lord, our God, the Lord alone, and then the first command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so the first focus is on heart, and then second, soul, which is a broader term, and then this last one is kind of a funny idiom in Hebrew, because it really doesn't say strength. It says, with all your ma'od, which is usually translated very. It, it was an idiom uh, that would express everything you've got. So it starts with all your heart in the sense of your mind. In other passages, uh, it brings in this idea of mind, with all your heart, that is, with all your thinking. That's where it starts, is in your mind. And then with all your soul, and then with all of your being, everything you have. Uh, all of your possessions, all of your time, all of your uh, uh, hobbies, everything that you are involved in is is to come under the authority of God, and this is expressed as the love of God. Now, we think of love today often as an emotion, but love is not an emotion. You cannot command an emotion. In fact, uh, when you look at how the word love is used many times in some of the ancient... Um, uh, ancient covenants, especially when a large empire has conquered a smaller country and they would enter into a covenantal agreement and the the uh, country that had been defeated, that king would have to swear a loyalty covenant to the conqueror in which he swore to love the conqueror. Now, usually that didn't mean that they were going to have warm, fuzzy feelings and that they were going to uh, have all of this, this sentimental warmth towards the conquering king. That would be un- both unrealistic and uh, almost impossible. What it meant was that the vanquished king was to now give all of his loyalty, all of his obedience to the conquering king. And so this is the picture because the Mosaic Covenant is form, shape, structured according to one of these uh, suzerain vassal treaty forms, which is what they were called, the suzerain being the conquering king, the vassal being the one who was conquered. And so the command here is to love the Lord your God, to give him all of your loyalty, to completely subordinate yourself to the authority of God. 
And then in Deuteronomy uh, uh, 6, 6, we read, In these words I command you today shall be in your heart, in your thinking. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the ways, uh, by the way, when you lie down, when you are up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets upon your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The main idea here is for parents, you're going to teach, diligently teach this to your children, not just at one set time. You're not going to have Bible story time before you go to bed at night, and I'll read you a Bible story. You're not going to have a time maybe in the morning where you would might uh, tell them a story, especially before they go to school, uh, before they're old enough to go to school, I mean. But this would be that as you go through life, there's a thousand teaching moments every day, and parents need to be there to instruct the children as to how they are to think and react to these kinds of circumstances on a biblical basis. Often this is done by the mother because she's the one who is at home. But the when you get into the New Testament, we'll see this in Colossians uh, 4, that the responsibility for that is given to the father. The mother is often in our culture the one to whom this is delegated, and that's, I think, a temporal necessity. But too often where that has led is to fathers who've abdicated that responsibility. Uh, Mothers are part of that and a vital part of that. And I remember when I was a kid growing up, because my point of contact most frequently was going to be my mother after school and other times. It was my mother who would frequently tell me things like uh, if I came home and I was talking about a new friend, first thing out of her mouth would always be, well, are they a believer? And I knew that whenever I mentioned any anybody knew, that's going to be the first question. Now, my mother had established that pattern from the time I, w- I could talk and have friends. So that by the time I wanted to come home and say, well, I met this girl at school, I knew what the first question was going to be and that there was not going to be, if I couldn't demonstrate clearly that she was a believer, then that was as far as it was ever going to go. And so that established those patterns from the from the very beginning, and that's what parents need to do. You are training officers that God has given you. I keep hearing parents say, well, I want to be my kid's friend. Now, the Bible never says you need to be your kid's friend. Wait till they're 20, 25, 30, then you can become friends. Until then, you are their drill instructor, their training officer. You are the one who God has put there to teach them the Word of God and to instill that into them so that they can grow up to be uh, what God intended them to be. So this is the focus of this command here within the framework of the divine institution of of marriage and the family. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk about it all the time, not just Sunday, not just Bible class, not just on occasion, but all, all the time. Now, in Mark chapter 12, and we're not going to take the time to go there, one of the scribes came to Jesus and asked him, uh, what's the most important commandment? And G- often we quote this and, with, and we skip part of it, and we skip to like uh, Mark 12:30, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus adds that. Uh, with all your strength, there's that same, you, see, you see the same kind of progression here. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he brought that in to summarize the second tablet of the the law. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not how he starts. He actually starts by saying the first commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our our God, the Lord is one. 
He starts with God, and that's what we always have to start with is, is starting with God. So we, we, I started this by focusing on the fact that to get to these attributes, we have to be able to bear with one another and forgive one another. We have to have grace orientation and humility in order to do that. That's our foundational idea. So let's close by going to the last passage I wanted to look at this morning, which is Romans chapter 12. And I want to connect this back to something I said at the end, towards the end last week. Romans 12, 1 and, 1 and 2 are just foundational verses for the spiritual life. It comes at a shift in, in Paul's argument in Romans. In the first 11 chapters, he's talking more about specific uh, doctrines related to justification, the spiritual life, and God's righteousness in relation to Israel. And now he's going to draw some real practical conclusions. So it begins with, therefore... And he says, I beseech you, that's how many of us memorize that verse, if you memorized it at one point from the King James, and it means I challenge you. It is a uh, uh, present active indicative of the word parakaleo, the same word paraklete is a noun describing the role of the Holy Spirit. It's a challenge, it's an exhortation. Uh, he is uh, confronting them, as it were, with the implications of everything he has said already. He said, I challenge you, therefore, brethren, on the basis of what? The mercies of God. The foundation for our life for grace, orientation, and humility is to start with an understanding of God's mercy. And then we have the command that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, the word present here is a, an aorist uh, imperative. That's why I started talking about that at the beginning. An aorist imperative does, it's not a one-shot decision, walking the aisle, commit your life to Christ. It is, it summarizes it as a priority that we are to, but in actuality, we are to do this all of the time. But Paul uses the same word in Romans 6 when we are to present our members, talking about our body, present our members as slaves of righteousness. So this idea goes throughout the New Testament. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That means we're giving up control of our lives to God. We're recognizing he's the boss, not, not us. Uh, so we're to present our bodies. That refers to our everything that we are. Once again, we're back to all that we are uh, is to come under the authority of God. If we don't start there as a foundational attribute, then we're going to see a lot of problems crop up throughout our lives that are the result of having a split allegiance. Part of our allegiance is to us uh, and our own agenda, and part of our allegiance is to God. We ultimately are saying God's agenda is good when it's convenient for me. I remember years and years ago when I was in high school and college coming to a realization of what that really meant in, in, in my own life. And for years, from the time I was probably late high school, early college, I would make a lot of, we all make a lot of stupid, foolish decisions, but I had a consistent prayer, Lord, whatever I want to do, ultimately I want to serve you. And whatever the capacity is, that doesn't mean as a pastor, that means whether I'm a teacher at that time, I wanted to go into the military as a career uh, military officer, I went to college on an ROTC scholarship, 
And that was my agenda. That was my focus. But I wanted to serve the Lord in doing that, which takes me back to what the illustration I used last week. I had a couple of questions. I didn't want a misunderstanding. I was saying, and the first part of this is critical, when you have a decision to make, when you have a decision to make, a lot of times you don't have a decision to make, but when you have a decision to make and you're in one location, and I use the example of a person who gets a great job promotion opportunity, and if they take that opportunity, they can see a lot of ways in which that's going to provide for the family. It's going to give them financial security. Five, six years down the road, maybe they're going to be able to retire much better than they would. Somebody. There are all kinds of great benefits from this one option. But that option would not allow them to be close to any kind of a church that teaches the word. It would not allow them to continue to bring their children up within the context of a local church. And it would uh, not allow them to really serve the Lord because they're, when they list the top ten reasons for why they would take this, being able to serve the Lord in a greater capacity isn't one of them. So if you have a choice, and some people don't, some people are in the military, some people are just wherever they are and they can't move, and, and, and I understand that, but when you have a choice in life, those choices have to come under the authority of presenting your life as a sacrifice to God. That's the umbrella, that's the foundation because that's authority orientation. And that means that brings into play certain promises such as uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So that you get this choice thrown at you and you say, okay, I could choose this. And in my human viewpoint, that's going to provide materially, educationally, whatever it is. That's great for my career, but I, I'm not going to be able to serve God there. So I'm not going to take it. I'm going to make, have to make another choice where I'm going to be able to serve the Lord. Now, this, the promises that we have in Scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and, and um, uh, Matthew uh, 6, 32, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us, tell us that when we make choices in line with this fundamental principle of presenting ourselves to God as a, human, as, as a, as a sacrifice, to serve him, then what is going, the result is going to be is that God is going to direct our lives. God is going to work those other things out. It's not up to us to make sure that our retirement's going to go well or that our career's going to go well. It's up to us to determine that our priority in life, uh, whether you're a carpenter, whether you're a painter, whether you're a shop clerk, whether you're an investment counselor, uh, whether you're a housewife, your priority in life is to serve the Lord. Everything else has to feed under that. And when, when that's the priority, God works things out. But when we're constant, when we spend the next 30, 40 years of our life after we're saved trying to decide whether we really want to trust God with our life, uh, what's going to happen is that there's, there's going to be just a, a, a cluster of problems and calamities that occur because we're still trying to follow our agenda. Now, that doesn't mean that when you make decision, consistently make decisions in your life that, that the Lord's the number one priority, that your agenda doesn't get in the way. We think of David. David is called a man whose heart was after God. That's, his, that's the priority that shaped his life. Well, what about Bathsheba? Well, see, we all fail. But that was an aberration, not the norm. 
The norm was his heart was for God. The norm was he was doing what Romans 12.1 says, presenting his life as a living sacrifice, something that was a worship of God. That was his priority. When we make that our priority, doesn't mean we're not going to sin, doesn't mean that our agenda is not going to get in the way at times, but we know that that is something that is that is set, and it's within that framework that we're growing. But until we get that kind of figured out in our mind, uh, we, we continue to just play games with God. And so we'll never really see the fulfillment of these character changes in our life uh, as God transforms us until we get the basic right, which is that we have to submit to the authority of God and realize he is the controlling authority for everything in our life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged as Paul challenged his readers in Romans and in Colossians that we are to put on these attributes. We are to submit ourselves to your authority. We are to present ourselves constantly, daily, moment by moment, as a, as a living sacrifice. And it's within that framework that the transformation occurs, as Paul says in Romans 12.2, which comes after 12.1, that we are not to be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The, there's a connection between presenting ourselves and then not conforming and being transformed. So we need to understand that, that we need to make sure you are our priority. Father, there may be someone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, and they need to understand that what I've said today is not addressed to them, but is addressed to those who are already believers, those who are already part of the family, those who have a new identity. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't have that new identity. You are, uh, as the Bible describes, you're spiritually dead. You do not have an eternal destiny with God, and the solution has been provided for you, and that is through Jesus Christ. He's paid the penalty for your sin. That's not the issue. You don't have to change your life. You just have to uh, obey the gospel, which is the command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would make this clear to them through God the Holy Spirit and that if there's anyone here that's never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to believe in him for eternal life. Now, Father, we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.